Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that can't bring itself to put a joke in this intro because things look pretty damn bad right now. Today we have Hope, Laura, Walida, Ambria, and Zoe. And today we are here kicking off our global fascism series. It's been a hell of a week news-wise, and fascism is on the rise all over the world. So we wanted to devote our time and energy to really looking at what's happening and learning more about the history and the context of fascism in some featured countries. So I know we're going to do the United States, Brazil, Italy, Iraq, Sweden, Denmark, and possibly a few other ones in the series. Um, We'll be doing those over the coming weeks and months. And I want to add, if you live in a country that is not the U.S. and you're interested in talking to us about fascism in your country, please reach out to us, seasonofthebee at gmail.com or on Twitter at seasonofthebee. Um, We would love to talk to you if you live in one of those countries or any others even. And I think we might even accept some um, male guests if they have experience in those countries and want to talk about it on the show. Mm -hmm. So for today's show, we're going to give a bit of an overview and some of our general thoughts. And when a topic is this huge, I tend to like to start by trying to define what we're talking about. So a brief history of fascism would be helpful here. Um, basically, it started in pre-World War I Italy, and Italian fascists believed that the complete mobilization of society under a one-party state was necessary to prepare for armed conflict for the nation and also to respond to economic difficulties, basically to build a, a stronger nation. And fascism typically requires that such a state is led by a strong leader, so hence the dictator, Uh, to forge national unity and maintain a stable and orderly society. It also elevates violence and in particular views political violence and war as means that can achieve increased national success and frequently the only means to achieve increased national success. Yeah, so um, to continue a little bit about what fascism looks like, um, it has looked differently where it has grown, but it does share certain characteristics and there are scholars in the area that have, def- have attempted to define it and sort of flush out what characteristics it, it demonstrates. Um, and uh, Robert Paxton is, a, is sort of on the forefront of defining and talking about what fascism is and isn't. Um, and I just want to read a quick uh, definition of how he describes it. Um, he says, fascism may be defined as a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity, in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal constraints goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. So these are these are sort of characteristics we can think about, um, you know, even if we have just a basic understanding of what happened in Germany after World War I um, and how the Nazi party sort of use the Versailles Treaty and the crumbling uh, liberal economics of the time 
to impose their fascist ideology um, on the country. Um, we see similarities here. We can see similarities with this in Italy and Brazil today. Um, there's a there's another. Uh, some of you may know Clara Zetkin, who was um, a, a sort of very famous socialist uh, a little over a century ago um, in Germany. Her best friend was Rosa Luxemburg. I'm sure some of you know her as well. Uh, and she actually had really, really good insight on fascism in, in a time where fascism was a sort of new and unknown and undefined movement or ideology um, as a form of political violence. And she had a few sort of points she made about what fascism looked like. And um, if we if we go through them, and I'll go through them really quickly, we'll, we'll sort of see some similarities between what she was saying and what we saw rise in Germany and Italy and what we see rising today in other parts of the world. So the first point she makes is that fascism's emergence is inextricably tied to the economy, economic crisis of capitalism and the decline of its institutions. So again, we see this happening here, we see it happening in Brazil. Fascism possesses a mass character with a special appeal to the petty bourgeoisie layers threatened by the decline of the capitalist order. So when we see, um, you know, Trump's base is the suburban small business owner, this is who we mean. These are the people feeling the most pressure from capitalism's collapse, and then they turn to the strongman to save them. Uh, to win, uh, Clara goes on to say, to win support from these petite bourgeoisie and working class layers, uh, the sort of working class resentment that arises from economic insecurity, fascism makes use of anti-capitalist demagogy. This is why while fascism has common characteristics, it has mixed models of economics like Hope mentioned uh, before. The only real ideology is power for power's sake. And so they will build an economic order that fits whatever their base calls for, even if it's unstable or contradictory and eventually collapses um, Anyway, uh, her next point is that fascist ideology elevates nation and state above all class contradictions and class interests. So how we would interpret that today in today's context is that it's a reactionary cultural movement looking to solve economic problems. And the way it does this is through things like ethnic cleansing, um, dep mass deportations, mass jailing of leftists and socialists and other politically or culturally undesirable peoples, like people who are gay, people who are transgender. Um, Nationalism is used to incite militarism and imperialism. So we so far have not seen a call to war from this president directly, but we do see posturing against China, North and South Korea, um, other countries that, that we find to be economic enemies of the United States, and it builds a sort of economic nationalism in the people. Um, Racism and racist scapegoating is central to fascist propaganda. So this comes in various forms, but it is most evident in the US now with these rogue, rogue gangs of proud boys um, that we see and other white supremacist groups uh, on the rise um, against black Americans, against Latinx people, against Black Lives Matter activists, dreamers, and as we saw yesterday, Jews. Mm. And adding on to what Walida just said, anti-Semitism has always been connected to fascism yeah. and this is in turn connected to anti-leftism. So one example of this is the right-wing ideas around cultural Marxism, which is a conspiracy theory that's recently been brought more into the mainstream. So according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the theory of cultural Marxism holds that the Jewish Marxist philosophers of the 1930s Frankfurt School hatched a conspiracy to corrupt American values by promoting sexual liberation and anti-racism. 
Um, some very vocal far-right supporters also now argue that cultural Marxism is at the root today of political correctness. And this has evolved and grown and spread via like toxic social media channels. Um, now encompasses efforts made to advance equal rights for gay people or black people or women, and they're all seen as part of an insidious Jewish plot to undermine white solidarity and culture. Yeah, uh, Hitler um, actually wrote about cultural Marxism as well. Um, their their main enemies are always the leftists, right? The leftists are always the anti-fascists on the on yep. the forefront of of trying to fight fascism when they see it rise. Yep. Um, so her last, uh, Clara's last point is that at a certain point, important sections of the capitalist class, and this is a really important thing to think about because we're going to, we see it around us. Important sections of the capitalist class begin to support and finance the fascist movement, seeing as a, seeing it as a way to counter the threat of proletarian revolution. So when we say the center punches left, this is what we mean. It attacks the movement that threatens their political power and their power over capital and their relation to capital and allows the fascist movement instead to gain power generally because that fascist movements, sure, they're racists, they're crazy, they're, they're, um, they're led by a sort of charismatic leader, although the one they have now happens to also just be an idiot. But they, don't, they leave their... <laughs> political positions and their and their economic power alone. They don't threaten them the way the leftists threaten them. So when, when we start to go into our series and talk about these various countries, we're going to see the same pattern emerge where um, neoliberalism, liberal economics is failing. Mm. The middle uh, classes are starting to feel squeezed. Radicalism starts to rise, both on the left and the right. And the center, as it collapses in trying to hold on to its power, joins with the fascist right and punches left and allows fascism to rise. And we're seeing, we're seeing tenets of that here in the United States now. Yeah. I, f first, it's always like unbelievable when writers have such prescient words or like such, you know, long lasting words. And so I'm always just like moved by that. So even though it's a really messed up topic and unfortunate how prescient it is, it's amazing that we have Clara's work to like, be a framework for understanding a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I feel like I've been thinking a lot about what, especially what you were just saying, Olita, about, you know, how, how we then respond and when the center punches left or how we behave in that situation. Um, so, you know, I wanted to tap into at, and mention, as we have before in this podcast, that a common way the right center and libs try to attack leftists is by calling us fascist and like kind of taking these moments and turning it on us. Um, and I think particularly when everything feels so raw all the time with the growth of Nazism in the United States, it's really important for us to have ways of unpacking and responding to when people critique the left. Um, obviously for us, it seems really clear what the differences are between Nazism and communism or Nazism and socialism are, but for folks who are re really being re-triggered by, and in particular, this anti-Semitic act, I anticipate lots of takes by libs that will suggest that we need to respond with temperance, um, and weaponize this movement against the left in its own way, um, particularly being right around the corner from the election, um. And I think 
one of the best ways we can continue to push back against this is by educating ourselves and really practicing articulating. Like I sometimes have a running dialogue in my head with random family members of mine just because I like to be prepared for that sort of situation. So I just kind of like think about what they could say, the possible arguments they could have and like really think through how I would want to articulate that to them. And and not only be prepared to to articulate the differences between Nazism and and fascism and leftism, uh, but also why t- toppling the capitalistic system is crucial to ending Nazism and fascism. And also continuing to re- reiterate to folks that communism has never actually existed yet. Um, I think that we, I just, I always see the rhetoric start to twist around these sorts of issues to, to really turn to demonize the left. Um, mm-hmm. And always. I'm just curious if y'all have more to add to like what we do when we're, we are, I feel like in some ways in this perpetual state of mourning because we're like anticipating this, these awful things to continue because we also understand that nothing is meaningfully being done to change these systems right now. So because we have that awareness, because we don't see transformative change happening, (laughs) how do we prepare ourselves to try to continue to stand for leftist ideals? And not only that, but at least even try to really stay firm in why that's so very different from, from fascism. <laughs> good question, Laura. <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think it's definitely something I have a hard time with, like, yeah, exactly what you're saying, kind of how to be articulate, especially when a lot of times it feels like, it feels like the answer and like leftism being a good idea is so obvious. And it's just like hard to argue with a, another side that feels, I guess, so unrelatable Mm -hmm. to where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also kind of back to the last point in what Walita was just going through um, with like the center punching right or punching left, sorry, (laughs) going towards the right is that in times like this where it causes a lot of like uh, anxiety for everyone, but people are seeking something that's like comfortable. And even though the system is so fucked up, it feels like maybe they're trying, uh, seeking some kind of like comfort in what's always been, even though it's just blatantly not working. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They don't, people don't like to think, um, that the place they live and the people they know and the government that they live under could be fascist. And, and, you know, part of it's, part of it stems from the fact that we've been so busy um, calling the other side fascist for so long, just like they've (laughs) been so busy calling us socialists for so long, um, or at least the Democrats socialists for so long, that, that it's sort of lost its bite. And now, now we have to really talk about defining it and recognizing what it is. And, and I'll be honest, I don't know that I, I yet would call the United States a fascist country. I think it's certainly authorita- authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, the Proud Boys ro- uh, roaming street gangs, as a friend of mine was saying last night, uh, make my eyebrows go up a little because that's reminiscent of black shirts and brown shirts that we mm-hmm. saw in Italy and Germany, respectively. Um, but they're getting arrested and they're not technically part of <laughs> part of the state. Um, 
Well, so, interestingly, like we see that they they actually have an amount of police protection that's yeah. available as long as it's a low profile enough event or occurrence. Right. 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 Um, yeah. And then once it gets more attention, then there's more pressure for them to be held accountable. Right. Right. It's a sort of wink, wink protection. Like, oh, yeah, no, we totally are going to break up these proud boys. Wink, wink. Yeah, we're just making sure everybody's safe, but they're not. Um, I I think it's really important we make the distinction now that when we talk about fascism, there is fascism at a a government level. And Mm -hmm. then there's like fascist ideology on an individual or group level. And we have to interact with them and treat them differently. I think, especially on the political level too, like, I, I think that we, we need to like make sure that anytime that there's any sort of rhetoric that is, is like, well, we just have to come together or like any, anything that at all <laughs> recognizes any fucking validity in this absolute shit storm that's occurring that continues to perpetuate like this extreme amount of violence on all these people like we need to figure out the best possible way to like just shut that shit down immediately because that is what brainwashes children right like that is if it's just like well we just need to get along like yeah that sounds good to a child if you don't know the rest of the situation but if you understand that the other side is literally murdering people out of hate then what like just like we need to shut that shit down yeah, there's a lot of false equivalency happening. Um, I've heard this in a lot of different media outlets and even in conversations with people I know where they'll say like, well, yeah, you know, bad things are, are happening now, but but the Democrats were yelling at people in restaurants and everybody is being really <laughs> uncivil to each other and we just need everyone to like tone it down Not and that. talk in a nice way. And that like, it's galling to me, but it's really notable that for a lot of people, I heard that on NPR today and like all of the panel just like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, like what? Those things are not the same at all. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's, that's, I haven't, there's not a good way that I've found to counter something like that because I try to stay back. They're not the Mm. same. And they just keep repeating like, well, can't like, but we should just all do better. Well, I, I I just had the fortune of going to this really incredible conference in Philly um, the last three Yay. days. And uh, this one speaker on a, a plenary discussion, um, you know, she was a, a woman of color kind of speaking to this group of predominantly farmers, um, but also just people related to the food system um, at some point and she made the distinction between uh, being uncomfortable and being unsafe and how important those distinctions are, particularly in the world we currently live in and understanding that specifically as allies and as people who have more safety in being uncomfortable or, you know, like someone being called out at a restaurant is obviously not the same as being targeted and murdered. Right. So, I think underlining this very real and very specific difference and, and how and where those differences show up between being unsafe and being uncomfortable. And then also as as particularly myself as like a white ally being like those, this is the time. These are the moments where we can put ourselves into uncomfortable positions and situations because 
we have the privilege of being uncomfortable in that situation and not unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> when, so I, I, I come across those people too. I'm sure we all do with, where they're like, yeah, there's no difference. These, these two sides are in essence the same, but uh, you know, w- what I generally ask them is then, okay, well, what does political dissidence look like to you? What, what is it when, when people are angry with their government, rightfully angry with their government and the representatives, how do they express it when they can't even vote because they're not even being allowed to do that? They're not allowed to, um, hold their own political party accountable, which is what the Democrats keep telling us. We're not allowed to question them. We're not allowed to question what they do or what they say. So what we do, what happens then is we go into the streets and we protest or we find them in the restaurants and we protest and we tell them that we're angry because we literally have no other avenue. When people are taking to the streets and going into your restaurants and interrupting your meals, it's because th- you've literally given them no other avenue to get to you, to complain and tell you what they think you're doing is wrong and tell you what changes they need. That's what's happening with the general public. What's happening with the fascists is they're being emboldened by a fascist-like president. And they know they have the cops on their side. They know that they can go out there and commit acts of violence and get away with a lot of it. And they're killing people now. That is not the same thing. Murdering civilians, murdering people in their places of worship or at the grocery store or on the street is violence. That is actual political violence. And it's chaotic violence. It's no, it's no longer just the controlled violence of our state. It is now chaotic violence in the streets and it is being perpetrated by white terrorists, by white supremacists. And that is different from citizens being angry at their elected officials. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Also, it's like, I wish Kellen was here uh, to talk about history stuff because like, (laughs) uh, you know, this idea that like, going and yelling at people in a restaurant is some like new hideous like millennial thing and that like uh (laughs) harassing uh politicians is like something new that was dreamed up by the uncouth uh people of today (laughs) you know (laughs) um of course like the elite have always 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 been like don't do that right <laughs> don't don't start waving pitchforks outside my house <laughs> don't uh don't march down the street with like you know um tomatoes like ready to expropriate our wealth um, <laughs> exactly. you know it's just kind of funny the way it's framed as if like this sort of age old like the elite people calling for civility and you know the people um, just doing whatever it takes to get their attention and to make them feel threatened enough to, um, to sort of tip the balance of, of power. I feel yeah. like you stood in Kellen's power really well right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did. yeah. I didn't have any specific stories. I'm sure she would have had some sort of like great reference, but anyway, yeah, yeah. it was good because it's good to remember that. Yeah, this is a fucking normal thing for us to do. And like, we need to keep doing it because like, we have no room for civility on that level anymore. <laughs> like we have no yeah. room for I that. I think also in like the civility discussions, I mean, being quiet doesn't lead to results and protesting does. Um, and that's what people want us to forget is that a lot of the rights we do have came from protesting, came from demanding them um yes like even really basic things as all of us being able to vote was like 
years of protest and pushing for it. Um, and violence. And uh, we, we uh, yeah. women were literally pouring acid yeah. and fucking up golf courses and knocking these representatives on their heads and throwing bricks through their windows. Yeah. So, and I th- a simple piece of Hell advice yeah. that, yeah, a simple piece of advice that I was given that is very simple, but it stuck with me was in talking to a friend about uh, a few years ago, just how in a lot of, when you have a lot of, you know, anger, especially politically, people are like, you're overreacting. It's not going to be that bad. You're overreacting. And my friend just said, keep overreacting. And that's mm-hmm. something that has kind of, I've continued to use as a mantra and just, you know, keep doing what they think is overreacting. Just keep doing it. Well, I think right. that's a great note to end on for the break. <laughs> cool. Keep overreacting. Like time for our music break. Keep overreacting. <laughs> heavy topic fascism what is the good news um how do we fight fascism well the long story short the too long didn't read version is 
organized communities. Mm -hmm. um, when we get further and further into the series on fascism, we will see that in places where fascism was successfully fought, um, either quickly or at least over time, uh, people's workplaces were organized, people's communities and neighborhoods were organized, and they um, fought together. One of the hallmarks of fascism is that it is minority-led. As I said earlier, this president actually lost the election. Um, it was a constitutional technicality that he won. But um, anti-fascists and non-fascists outnumber them by a lot, always, every time. We are many and they are few, and this has always been the case. So the class-conscious person overcomes the cultural reactionary nature of the fascist, which is why they always go for the communists first, um, and defeats the fascist. And this is, you know, this is a simplification. Fascists are very violent. Uh, they come with weapons. They come ready to fight, which is why anti-fascism or Antifa, you know, is so important. Um, and why, uh, you know, this is why the center also punches punches Antifa and why the right punches Antifa, because they are the, the violent... Uh, answer to a violent movement. Um, so, you know, I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to say that it won't require physical confrontation. It already has required it. I can't say that it won't require um, any type of any type of confrontation, even if it is nonviolent. It's all already requiring it, and it's already happening. Uh, it will require action, even in the face of fear. But it has to be done together. Yeah, and I wanted to reiterate also that fighting for socialism and equality is a really important part of resistance to fascism, which is why they're so scared of it. And as we find ways to unite people across class lines, which is more now than ever important, because we're seeing such a divide between haves and have nots. And like the 1% is more like the 0.1% mm. and trending more that way. So we have even greater people power by uniting in that way. Um, and then something else I've been thinking about, and I really would love to hear what you all think about this, if like it doesn't make sense to you, or it's just been rattling around in my brain. But in order for fascism in the US to sway more people and more moderate people and avoid provoking like immediate, strong, widespread resistance, I think it has to demonstrate some element of law and order. And it seems like from my research, this has been kind of a struggle so far right now in this moment in the United States for the fascists and the neo-Nazis, because there are so many high profile examples of how out of control some factions are mm. um, and even some individuals. So there's like large scale events like the Unite the Right rally, which was a huge disaster. And then individual actions like the shooting that happened yesterday at the synagogue. And then also people that operate independently online doing things like doxing allies and enemies alike indiscriminately. So they'll even dox like other fascists, for example. Um, so not that these groups are against violence by any means, but from reading about them, so their leadership had planned to grow the movement by seeming less extreme, at least initially. Um, but they also have like no control over the people they're associating with. And in the U.S., those people have access to guns. Yeah. Like, I think people on the in the center and liberals and even like conservatives who aren't fascists, which like I have to remind myself that they do exist. Um, but uh, they, I, I think you're totally right that people in their minds are also waiting to be alarmed by the handmaid's tale situation. Right. Or like um, these kind of like apocalyptic fascist 
visuals we possibly have in our head um, and that like there might be a, a way in which we're slow to react because we're just like, oh, it's just these small things instead of like the left just like screaming into microphones like these things are all part of one same pattern. Like this is this is something that we need to be paying attention to do and this is something that affects all of us. Um, I get where you're coming from, but I'm actually kind of making the inverse argument that actually the fact that some of these factions and individuals operating underneath the tent, like fascists and neo-Nazis are so like, they're they're still doing things that are very like what taboo or too really unsafe and Mm. overtly violent in a way that doesn't seem like law and order. So like, right. There's like two things that have really been slowing the kind of the creep of popular, you know, fascism as an idea, not like governmental fascism in the U S one is deplatforming. Um, and then the second one is really like that it's it's still taboo. You can still get fired for it. Um, your neighbors will be upset with you. Your family might be upset with you. So like it's very critical, I think, to holding fascism back as something that is more acceptable that all, that mainstream like working class people still are like, um, no, I don't want that. And it seems like having these kinds of things happen, which aren't, you know, aren't really part of like an organized effort it seems like it makes it harder to convince those people that what is happening under these kind of fascist ideas is okay does that make sense totally um yeah and I think that I'm see I see both sides of it right like there's um there's this creeping underlying way in which white supremacy has been upheld you know right where We still have Confederate flags all over the place. Like, that's fine. That's not going to be something that gets you fired from your job. That's not going to be something that necessarily makes your neighbors question who you are unless they, like, really fucking get it. But, um, and so I could see how that then still has this, like, cultural significance that poses a threat and amplifies these hierarchies in such an intense way because people aren't as likely to question that, like, subtle if if a confederate flag can be considered fucking subtle um but then yeah i i also i just think like people are just ready to ignore all these symbols until uh there's big ones also so i'm like (laughs) seeing both those things like pulling at my brain I think what you you two are seeing are like flip sides of a coin because what what's on the one side the the fascists trying to rebrand themselves as like alt-right or giving themselves adorable little names like proud boys. I don't know what they're proud of, but I know they're definitely boys. Um, Like, you know, there's the out, (laughs) there's the out and out fascists. There's the out and out white supremacists who cloak themselves in a lot of the language of the left by talking about identity and identity politics. And we're just, we have a white culture. Why can't we be proud of it? If you can be proud of black culture or Latin culture, whatever um, bullshit they're spewing. Um, And then we're seeing the sort of liberals who are, yeah, they see these these one-off events. They don't really think about them. They don't really connect that this is like a a system, like like a system of oppression and a system of white supremacy. And it's because they genuinely don't see white supremacy as the foundation for everything that happens in this country. Like they see their... Who was telling me this? Like at one point, Fox News was more diverse than MSNBC. Like they had more black anchors and journalists on it. They had more women than MSNBC did. And so their whole spiel was, 
how do you, how can you call us racist and sexist? We, we're more diverse than you are. Mm. And, but we know that they are white supremacists. We know that they're racists and misogynists. But uh, so how can that be? How, how are we seeing these people that are not white joining white supremacist groups? Um, I myself am seeing Iraqi Assyrians behind Trump at his rallies holding up Assyrian flags. It's super embarrassing. And it's because because people can support a, a, a supremacy group. They can become a part of that group by accepting its hegemony, by accepting mm-hmm. its supremacy. Like, okay, I'm not white, but but if I uphold white supremacy for you, if I uphold capitalism and its hierarchy for you, if I become part of this story, this white supremacist story, you'll leave me alone and I'll succeed and I'll be okay. So you see that happening in fascist countries everywhere. You'll see you'll see non-Arabs joining Arab fascism. You know, you'll see non-Italians joining Italian fascism. It's just how it works. And it's because there's always this contingency, there's always this group of resentful people, whether they're working class, whether they're members of the petite bourgeoisie, who who will join the hierarchy right. or, or at least supporting its systems so that they themselves feel like they're part of the power group, even though they'll, they aren't and they never will be. Absolutely. Yeah, it reminds me, I made a meme. <laughs> <laughs> One time, and it was like, it was this woman from the suffrage movement um, for women's suffrage, uh, who was against women's suffrage, and she was this outspoken, um, this outspoken opponent of women's right to vote. And I made this meme that was like, how come I don't see any support for this brave woman activist from feminists? (laughs) Oh my god. She spoke her mind. You got, you don't like that, do you, feminists? Um, and it's just this idea that, like, just because some fucking asshole woman was like, uh, you know, well, women, I don't, I'm a woman and I don't think women should have the right to vote. It's like, well, it's still sexism. Like, it's still fucked up. You're still being, you, you are asking to be oppressed and that's your own personal problem. Like it's just so weird to think that that's supposed to be some kind of proof uh yeah that like it's not sexist to try to keep women from voting or it's not racist to try to have a white ethno state and i think it's like it's so it can be like even more sinister than that too right like this is what capitalism does best it 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 uses all these different factioning and makes people turn on each other including themselves right um and point fingers at what they think could make sense so to not like point up at like what the real issues are um Mm. it's like Mm -hmm. specifically what capitalism does in order to maintain the hegemony that it has maintained over the last yeah it sows confusion on purpose and by design and I think this points this points right back to what was being said at the beginning of the episode, which is like this is why fascism is not about any sort of real material economic system. It's about you know it's about trying to subvert that and cover up those real power structures mm-hmm. in favor mm-hmm. of like these like sort of categorical power structures of you know race or sex or you know certain religious identities and on a like more pathological level um as someone who has like 
literally been brainwashed by another person, which is not a really easy thing to explain or describe. Um, I think that this, the way in which this narrative permeates the psyche of people, um, can lead people to say really intense and what could seem to us as insane things like pointing fingers at the identity group that they actually belong to as being the problem. Um, other than if it's like white people being like, yes, we're the fucking problem. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> it would be so easy if y'all just did that. Yeah, oh, exactly. shit, it's our fault. Let's, let's fix it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's just like, fuck, like there's some sort of like, I just feel like it's it's a mix between like that is how capitalism functions. It like obscures things, right? That's what Marx was always saying is like you think it's this thing, but in actuality it's this. Um, and also like hegemony and cultural brainwashing is real and can like have real manifestations and influences in mm-hmm. our lives. Also, this might be like too pithy, but thinking about the story Ambria was telling – some people just have really shitty opinions and that's why we don't vote on civil rights. Like you can't, we can't always ask people like how much do you care about other people? That's not, it doesn't, we know that that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, you know, that woman has the right to say her shitty opinion, but doesn't realize that by her arguing that women shouldn't have the right to vote and then being mad that other women don't respect her opinion. Like it's just so, it's so like meta and hypocritical Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I t- sorry to take us off on a really weird tangent there. I mean, I was trying to respond to what you were saying, Hope, but I know you're we also like under the framework of like, how do we organize against fascism? <laughs> so <laughs> getting back to that, um, I, so I don't know, I've been thinking about this a lot and I could see us galvanizing folks or organizing around the issues of feminism or Black Lives Matters or indigenous movements because fascism is something that can affect anyone and it stems from white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonialism. And so when we recognize that, when we recognize that fascism is built on these other isms, um, I think we have a better shot at transforming the whole system because we can bring people together who are already working against those other isms and come together under this larger, like, anti-fascist movement. Yeah, and adding to that, um, last year I read Outspoken by Julia Serrano, who is a prominent trans activist, as people haven't heard of her. Um, Her writing's really good, but a section of it she wrote about forming um, umbrella causes for activism and the importance of bringing various uh, interests that are related but often work separately together in order to form like a larger base um, and to support each other in those fights. And I think that one issue though that we see with that is things like for the Women's March and like so many like white women came out that don't usually participate in activism and they continue to besides aside from that to not participate or show up for like any black lives matter events or trans rights events or really for any other issues. So we're seeing some what of people coming together, but then people still not showing up for the issues that don't affect them. Right. 
Yeah, and another argument for intersectional organizing um, is that we've seen that some fascist and alt-right groups are willing to work and include with some segments of marginalized people, which I think Walida touched on a little bit earlier, but it's in a limited capacity, and they're just trying to build power, bring more people in, um, and also they have some deniability about it being explicitly like a racist or um, sexist mission that they have. Um, so like, for example, the Proud Boys include some men of color and also a few token women, mostly in like supportive or kind of admin roles um, or like fans, which is weird to me. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, as organizers, I think <clears throat> we have to keep this in mind and keep reiterating the message that these movements only embrace you until they build enough power to turn on you. Like you are not actually yeah. going to be part of who this benefits. Um, I just think that's important. Yeah. I think also like, kind of bring it back to looking at things globally um we see like a lot of countries are very in tune with u.s politics and follow what's happening here um and know more than a lot of people in the u.s know about what's happening here and the u.s as a whole like uh in terms of our education system and like just in our news like we really don't talk a lot about what is happening globally in other countries politics Mm. um and then another women's march example i think it's on my mind because it's such like a neoliberal action yes uh that's become so major so it's you know intertwining these things for me um but during the first major one we saw in 2017 um i was living in denmark at the time and was involved in a pretty large organizing there but i guess when i was there that's really when i realized how much our how much the u.s politics affect other people and how much like the women's march there was covering a lot of other issues they had like local organizations but we also beforehand i went to a round table um with women from all different organizations, there was like the woman that started Black Lives Matter in Denmark. And there's an organization called Everyday Sexism Denmark, which deals with like what sexism still looks like in a social democracy, because shockingly still exists. Um, And so we have this roundtable of kind of like, what are the issues that we want to talk about? But there was still a lot of it and not just the American women there that were talking about Trump and were really focused on how what was happening in the US and that was just some that just really made me realize how much like US politics are so present in other places and even as I was living there like I was learning about their system but not as much as what they knew about the US um but that's why I'm excited to be doing this series and trying to learn more about what's happening in other places absolutely um and I'm hoping that it's going to be a good way like for us and our listeners to get more into with global politics and hopefully like better engage in a global resistance yes 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 that was good I wish we had time for the whole song um (laughs) Um, so we could probably talk about this stuff for another couple of hours, which is why this is going to be a whole series mm-hmm. where, as, um, so I was saying, we're hoping that it helps our listeners feel more empowered and less alone during these really tough times. And it also lets us channel our anger into something. So we'll probably be nicer to like our friends and neighbors because we can do something productive with all this rage. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks for listening this week. Uh, as always, listen, rate, review on iTunes. You can order our sick merch at seasonofthebee.com. Slide us some money on Patreon so we can keep growing what we're doing here and improving. And I think now we're going to end on a Rosa quote. This is a, this is, I didn't want to end this on a two side of a note because I have hope despite everything around us. I, I always have hope that things are going to get better, even if they get worse first. Um, so I just wanted to leave everyone with this Rosa Luxemburg quote and, uh, change it a little to fit our times, but we won't carry out our struggle according to a plan set out in some book or theory. Our modern struggle is part of history, a part of social progress, and in the middle of history, in the middle of progress, in the middle of the fight, we must learn how to fight. Mm. Hell yeah! Solidarity! <laughs> I love you all! Love you! Love you! I love you! Love you. Fuck fascism! Love Fuck you all! Fascism. Fuck it all! Love you Fuck all! Fuck it all! Bye! Bye. <laughs>
<laughs> is that why you laugh so loud when I said it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're like <laughs> itchy butthole. Well, I actually just am a two-year-old and thought it was hilarious that you said itchy butthole, but. 